This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'd like to welcome Fordham University professor Dr. Emily Rosenbaum and Albert Einstein College of Medicine assistant professor Dr. Earl Chambers. They're collaborating on a study on how housing affects the health of Latinos in the Bronx. Good morning, everyone. Morning. Morning. So can I start by asking, what's the goal of the study? Uh, There's been a lot of research on the uh, impacts of living in public housing versus uh, using a uh, Section 8 housing certificate on various domains in life for uh, low-income households. And um, but most most of this research has yet to look at Latinos. And so our goal was to draw a sample of households with one third in public housing, one third on uh, using a Section 8 certificate and one third using no kind of federal subsidy just in Latinos in the West and South Bronx, just among Latinos, I should say, in the West and South Bronx uh, to see if um, the findings from previous studies in different cities hold for Latinos in the Bronx. Is there a reason why uh, research hasn't been done specifically on Latinos in this area at all? Uh, well, the, uh, the predominant populations in public housing are African-Americans, um, but also Latinos. Um, but the, the main study, uh, which was an experimental design called Moving to Opportunity, took place in five cities. Uh, New York was one of them, but New York, Boston, Baltimore, LA, and Chicago. Because of the selection of cities, the dominant population was African-American. So Latinos comprised a, a, a minority of the study population. Okay. Earl, did you want to add anything? I would say that we also wanted to include cardiovascular endpoints that previously hadn't been examined in those prior studies. So the prior studies weren't necessarily designed to look at those cardiovascular health outcomes. So we wanted to add to what had already been done by including some of those markers as well. Yeah. Now, help me understand, what is the ultimate goal? What do you hope to find... at the end of the three-year research? Our hypothesis is overall that uh, individuals who live in public housing will have more uh, disadvantaged health outcomes, including cardiovascular health outcomes, uh, than either uh, residents in section, uh, using Section 8 certificates or residents not using any kind of federal subsidy. But we suspect that part of that disadvantage is due to the housing and neighborhood differences across the three groups, such that um, residents in public housing often live in the most disadvantaged neighborhoods, um, and so and and also their housing may not be um, of as high quality as um, as other housing, and so we suspect that the um, the effect will run through the housing and neighborhood. Now, when I think of public housing, um, I think sort of a public housing in general, which is not is 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 incorrect, is what you're saying. There are three different divides of different types of public housing, and you you listed them. But could you explain a little bit more, uh, Emily, about what the differences in the three housing living situations are? Sure, sure. The main uh, uh, tenant-based federal subsidies are public housing, which is. Uh, which consists of public housing developments built by the federal government, but also the state, um, starting from the Depression on. Well, actually, up to the mid-'70s, the Nixon administration, when uh, attention turned away from the federal government's involvement in building housing for low-income households and instead uh, moving to a sort of market-based certificate or voucher approach. So, so just to clarify, it moved from like these big, tall buildings uh, that they sort of would house uh, anyone who needed public housing. And now instead of 
everyone being in this one large building or buildings plural, then instead they get a voucher where they could live wherever they want to? Well, theoretically, yeah. Households using Section 8 vouchers can access housing, affordable housing, in uh, the private market, um, and their share of the rent is 30% of their pre-tax income, and the federal government picks up the rest of the rent. But of course, there's a, there's a ceiling on what is allowable in terms of the overall rent. Not all landlords are willing to take uh, Section 8, uh, which is, um, and also affordable housing is located largely in cities, not in the suburbs. And so there are some restrictions on the universe of choice that Section 8 households have. So you're saying their their choices may be limited because landlords don't want to uh, welcome the vouchers? Yeah. Landlords who participate in the program have to participate in the program. They have to wait for the federal government to reimburse the rent. They have to do paperwork and all sorts of other things. Um, so there's there's somewhat of a dis- disincentive for landlords to participate in Section 8. But when uh, rental markets are slack, and so there are more units available than there are renters seeking them, Section 8 vouchers are highly desirable by landlords, or hi- highly desired by landlords, um, because then they'll have rent instead of the unit laying uh, vacant. But in tight markets, which is you know the case in New York for forever, basically, there's less of... Uh, an incentive for landlords to take them in. However, uh, starting a couple of years ago, New York City declared that uh, method of payment, so vouchers, um, is a status that cannot be discriminated against by landlords. Now landlords are required to accept Section 8 households. So they can't necessarily... If if requested. Okay, if requested. So we have public housing, vouchers, and was there a third? Households receiving no federal subsidy. Okay, so neither public housing nor Section 8. So they may be in housing that was developed by the city as affordable. We're um, looking into coding those people appropriately so that we can differentiate between federal subsidies, city subsidies, and people without any subsidies. And they might just be low income, in this case, Bronx Latinos? Everybody's low income. So we defined eligibility by uh, Latino identity, uh, renters, clearly, and being of an income eligible to receive public housing or Section 8. So that's uh, 30% of the area median income. Okay. Um, Now, Earl, help me understand how are you connecting where a person lives with their health status? A lot of the work that I've been doing before was looking at what we call the built environment and the social environment of neighborhoods. So in looking at that, we tried to make uh, associations between where people live and the resources available to them and their health outcomes, blood pressure, obesity, those kinds of things that have a strong relationship with uh, with health behaviors such as you know, eating unhealthy food and not being able to be physically active within your um, neighborhood space. So what we're wait notice- now explain that a little bit more. So mm-hmm. if I'm living, let's just say I'm just taking one of them. Um, I'm living in public housing. Okay. Right, right. So the area that I'm living in is you're saying too small for me to get physical activity? Is well, that what it might not it be is? too small, but there may not be opportunities for you to be physically active in your neighborhood. So so what, we're, what we see from other studies is that if you look at places where there are parks, green spaces, walkable sidewalks, uh, people tend to, to be less obese in those places. Because they can get um, out and walk or it, enjoy themselves at the park. Yeah, presumably they can get out and walk. They can access, and, and also they can access um, healthy food options. So we, we measure all those things in the, that, that are available to them and and places where there are more resources to be healthy, people tend to be healthier. So how we marry these two sort of ideas or, or concepts about housing policy with what we know about resources available to people in the neighborhood is 
how do people get to these places? So, um, and can we use certain housing policies as a means to, um, to a means for people who are of low income to be in a place that can actually help them live healthier? Now, what does that mean? So, if you live in a place that's has concentrated poverty or you know housing, they, they tend public housing tends to be in areas that lack the resources for healthy well-being meaning that they tend to be less walkable for the most part. They tend to lack places where people can eat healthy fruits and vegetables, get healthy fruits and vegetables, eat healthy, that kind of thing. And then there's also uh, crime. There are a lot of social indicators as well. Yeah. So crime is one of them, safety just in general. What we wanted to, to do was say, well, okay, these housing vouchers allow um, low-income residents to potentially move to areas that are not in places of concentrated poverty. We know that if you're in sort of these public housing buildings and they tend to be in, in places that lack those kind of resources to be healthy, well, maybe if you have a housing voucher, you could move to a place where the neighborhood isn't that way. So that was sort of the, the impetus. And, and some of the previous research studies that Emily mentioned in Moving to Opportunities had showed that to be the case for the most part. So we wanted to see whether that was going to hold in, in our population here in the Bronx. Now, I can understand, I'm not from New York, so I can understand if in the 70s you build these big buildings and it, you concentrate them in this particular area, so I can see why someone might have, you know, challenges in this particular neighborhood because it's a big building, they're all in the same place. Um, what I struggle to understand is the lack of available healthy foods. Why is there a lack of available healthy foods in lower income areas? There are probably a number of reasons why those kind of things don't exist. Um, not that they don't exist, but they don't exist um, in as, in as They're not as plentiful as, plentiful as they as are in places. better neighborhoods. And, and there are a lot of unhealthier options as well. Well, and uh, the literature has shown, the sociological literature and the planning literature um, and economics literature has shown that um, uh, when neighborhoods start to deteriorate physically and, and crime rises, um, businesses start to abandon them. So uh, public housing is disproportionately or was disproportionately built in uh, slum areas, quote unquote, um, during urban renewal in the 40s, 50s and 60s. And so they uh, raised the extant housing at the time, built largely tall towers in New York, but they're also short towers. Um, But as uh, poverty became more concentrated and as uh, the economy worsened after the 70s, businesses uh, in the area might have closed or newer businesses might have moved in. I mean, it was a it was a, a big deal when Pathmark opened up on 125th Street in Lexington a number of years ago. And because um, they didn't it was have the first any large supermarket in forever. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, so in poorer neighborhoods, without incentives added in, businesses are less likely to to enter them and to, to invest because uh, their investment may be riskier. Right. If if the neighborhood uh, is poorer and more crime ridden. So they're feeling that I don't want to open my grocery store in this particular neighborhood right. because people might rob me or maybe I might right. not get or rob my store rather right. or I might not get insurance or. Right. Exactly. OK. See, Well, the, another reason is that there may be a perception on the part of business owners that if there's a high level of poverty, forget the crime and all that stuff that that might coincide with a high level level of poverty. Will there be the demand for the things I want to sell in sufficient, at a sufficient um, degree that I will make a profit that's sufficient for me. So it's often the case that uh, businesses need incentives 
to uh, invest in certain neighborhoods. Okay, I understand that. So what makes this particular situation an issue in the Bronx? Why did you choose the Bronx to do your research? Emily and I, both we both work in the Bronx. So it's an important population for us. It's the poorest of the five boroughs, um, meaning that it has the highest sort of level of poverty. Yeah, and in the country, it's the third poorest county in the U.S., according to the 2010 census. So there's a high degree of need. Earl can speak more about the health needs. Prior studies had shown that these housing vouchers may or they do have benefits in African-American populations. And we just felt that the part of the story that was missing was the highest sort of rising demographics in the United States, which is Latinos, and that we didn't know enough about that particular group. And so we, we felt that it was a reasonable place to to do what we wanted to do and to look at that relationship, particularly here in the Bronx. Now, there are different ethnic groups that might fall under the sort of generic title of Latino or Hispanic, right. and they actually have varying cultural differences. So are you making allowances for this in your research? Uh, cultural differences in terms of uh, so, food preferences? or, or? Yeah, maybe cultural preferences, food preferences, uh, exercise preferences, things like that. Well, to a certain degree. I mean, statistically, we can control for um, immigrant status, whether people were born in the U.S. or not, or whether they were born in Puerto Rico or not, time spent in the U.S., as well as um, ethnic identity. Because our sample size is rather small, we have a limited range of controls, and about almost half of our sample consists of Puerto Ricans, right. uh, whether born on the island or born in, in uh, the city, or I should say the 50 states. And of the remaining 50% or so, um, about half are Dominican. So we have largely Puerto Rican and Dominicans in our study. But we do have um, immigrants and native-born individuals who um, identify with, with other Latino um, identities. Is that just because there's a large amount of Puerto Ricans and Dominicans yeah. in the Bronx? Is yeah, that... and also our focus on, on um, getting a third of the sample from public housing. Um, Puerto Ricans are most likely to live in public housing in New York City and among Latino groups nationwide, too. Part of that is because of their uh, citizenship. And in New York City, uh, the Puerto Rican migration began in the 40s. And so Puerto Ricans uh, constitute, well, up until, I guess, 2000, they constituted the majority of, of Latinos. So anyway, so in terms of... So wait, of, does that mean that they've been here longer? Yeah, than so, other. Yeah. Okay. And um, public housing waiting lists uh, are years long. Uh, the New York Times had an article recently that identified 220... Wait, 227,000 households on the waiting list for public housing, NYCHA's waiting list. And the uh, application, the waiting list for Section 8 uh, was closed in 2009 by NYCHA. So um, housing subsidies in New York City, federal subsidies in New York City, are um, in great demand. <laughs> yeah, and the supply is really restricted. Um, so uh, the longer a household has been here, um, assuming that they're income eligible, the more likely it is that they will have one of these um, forms of subsidy. So how did you go about picking the participants to be part of your research? Did, did it have Latino, Puerto Rican, Dominican, or just Latino and Hispanic, or what was the categories? First, we ask if you consider yourself to be Latino or Hispanic. And if so... Is there a difference? The census uses Hispanic. Um, as an identifier, sorry. So the census, there isn't a difference between the two, the two terms according to the census, but the census using his, uses Hispanic. So Okay. We know that it's important to not 
lump all Latinos into sort of the same subgroup because we wanted to um, to show that the group is not necessarily homogenous on a number of different issues that we thought were important to our uh, our outcomes that we were measuring in this study. So we tried to include um, items in our questionnaire that captured all of that. So not only just do you identify yourself as you know Latino and um, and then within that what kind of Latino per se. So are Dominican, Puerto Rican, those kinds of... And then we also captured a, a lot of different behaviors that allowed us to capture sort of this variability among the people that we were measuring. Can you give me an example so, of one? So for our for our food inventory, we, we were measuring how much types of food that are available in your home. So in your home, do these things exist? And then we like, have a list of, you know, do you have um, leafy vegetables? Is spinach kale, yucca, do you have uh, plantain, all those kinds of foods. And if you do, how, how are they prepared in your house? So if you have, um, let's say you have spinach as one of, your, one of your vegetables, is it fresh? Is it in a can? Or is it frozen? So and this was important in... It's, it's important to see how, um, to see how people um, not only purchase food, but how they keep it in their home. So fresh foods and vegetables are perishable, um, and they they need to be eaten shortly after purchasing, whereas frozen and canned can last longer. So we're interested to see, well, in certain homes, maybe you know, some of them tend to have these fruits and vegetables as, as fresh, whereas in others, they prefer it to be frozen, and in others, they prefer it to be canned. And then, you know, if, if leafy and fresh fruits and vegetables are sort of the best way to, to eat fruits and vegetables frozen is good too whereas can tend to be a lot of times they're in syrup or in some kind of um, high salt high, high salt, sodium high sodium uh solution, solution <laughs> juice uh, so 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 it gives us an idea to as to how um people are are, are purchasing food um we also have measures of, of language so we know what language they used in the questionnaire because our, our interviewers were bilingual so they could use uh they could interview respondents either in spanish or english but then we also have measures of how frequently people uh, read or write in Spanish and English. So we can we can um, separate people out in terms of being bilingual or preferring one or the other. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'm talking with Fordham University professor, Dr. Emily Rosenbaum, and Albert Einstein College of Medicine assistant professor, Dr. Earl Chambers. We're discussing their study that looks at how housing can affect the health of Latinos living in the Bronx. This is a three-year study. Where are you in the process now? Well, the study is over now. At least the data collection part is over. No and more pounding the pavement. No, no more. No more pounding the pavement. No, it's been. It's, uh, our interviewers came out of the field a year ago, approximately. Yes. So we're analyzing data, and uh, there are tireless workers at Einstein who are coding all sorts of fabulous data that we collected. We we collected uh, physical activity data um, by our respondents wearing an actigraph for seven days. Seven days. And um, and an actigraph is. It's a it's a physical activity monitor. Basically, you wear on your hip that uh, allows you to allows us to measure um, like the frequency and the intensity of your activity, physical activity. So walking, running, whatever you're doing. So we had the participants in the study wear that for seven days. Yeah, the the benefit of this is that not there aren't many studies, uh, at least in the in the sociological or demographic literature, more so in epidemiology, where you have this um, you have an objective measure of people's 
um, activity. We also asked people in the survey, um, have you participated in any of these activities and for how long? And is this representative of, of you know, your average monthly activity? Well, people exaggerate or understate. And um, when that's where that to, margin of error comes in. Right, right, right. But but people you, you can't really predict how people are going to answer in terms of whether they're going to overstate or understate. On certain topics, you, you would expect them to overstate. On other topics, you expect them to understate. So to measure obesity, we, we measured, or we didn't, the right. clinical interviewers <laughs> <laughs> measured height and measured weight instead of people telling, telling them. That, yeah, you know. I yeah, mean, I wouldn't tell anybody my real weight, so I don't. I don't expect anybody to tell me their real weight. So, um, and uh, so then we have the actigraph, and we we also have a blood pressure measurement instead of just asking people, "Do you have high blood pressure or not?" Because you know? they might not know. They might not know, mm-hmm. right? And so that's that's probably an added value to our study that if they didn't know they had a high blood pressure or are inching towards high blood pressure, the reading that we give them might. Um, help them get it checked out. So Emily Earl, when you collect all this data, uh, I know what your hypothesis is supposed to be, but what are you hoping to find? Our hypothesis is based on what we know about the relationship between this housing policy and health outcomes um, from prior literature. So our hypothesis reflect that. So we would expect to find what others have found, which is that, you know, the Section 8 voucher allows you the opportunity to to prioritize healthy behaviors. Current federal low-income housing policy is uh, focusing on um, demolishing public housing developments and replacing it with mixed-income developments to get a, a range of incomes in neighborhoods. So this is part neighborhood uh, redevelopment, if you will, and some would argue uh, some poverty-related policy because um, living in a mixed-income neighborhood uh, provides better opportunities for low-income individuals to improve their socioeconomic status. But the proportion of units, or actually the, the real number of units uh, affordable for low-income residents, is far smaller than the number of units that had been there when it was public housing. So a number of people, the people who are displaced from the public housing developments, are if they're eligible, they're given Section 8 vouchers. And by eligible, I mean that they were in compliance with their um, public housing lease. Um, are given Section 8 vouchers, and some are given the opportunity to move back to the mixed income development, but not all. Do they? Uh, some do, but it's only about 20% or something like that. So low income, federal low income housing policy is really focused on vouchers. So what we're trying to demonstrate, um, which has been suggested by MTO and other studies, is that when done well, uh, Section 8 vouchers can um, help to improve health. So housing policy and 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 uh, health policy can work in tandem to improve the health of low-income populations who have the worst health of all uh, segments of the income distribution. So let's say this actually, when it's all complete and done, this actually turns out exactly like you thought it would. Where do you go then with your research? Who do you want to use it? Well, we want uh, the housing policy world to take note of it and Congress and the Senate, perhaps, to uh, fund more Section 8 vouchers because there's this added value. It's not just get letting letting people afford their home, but affordability means that I can pay for health care. I can, I can pay for my kids' school clothes. I can pay for food. I can pay for all sorts of things that I wouldn't otherwise be able to in a highly un- unaffordable uh, way. 
but that also there's this there's this bang for your buck that housing policy can can create a public good by improving health by helping to improve health. Did you want to add something else? Yeah, on on an individual level, as far as you know, looking at within our department at Einstein, we have a number of um, of clinicians that try to help their patient population. So of our of the low income um, residents, it, it could mean that counseling people about diet and activity needs to be put into a larger context. And the context is their ability to actually do it. So you know, we've, we've worked a lot sort of, and by we I mean sort of the field of, 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 um, of obesity research on looking at how individuals' behaviors need to change in order to make them less obese, um, be healthier. So eating healthier, exercising more. And it's difficult for people to do. It's difficult to prioritize those behaviors. So part of it, which has been suggested by a number of studies, but linking it to the housing policy, I kind of is where things become more novel and unique in that way, is that the people live within a context. They live within the neighborhood they're in. They live within these sort of spheres of influence. And so to just say that, you know, you need to eat better and exercise more, well, does their does their environment support that behavior? And and if it doesn't, then not only is it an uphill battle, it's it's uphill in an environment that is, you know, actively promoting the opposite. So how do we sort of bring these two worlds together and say, okay, well, yes, we can continue with our individual level campaigns and sort of trying to get people to be more health conscious and, and more active and more um, and eat healthier. But we can also change their environment in ways that allow them prioritizing that behavior to be easier for them to do. So if I live in an environment where you're telling me eat healthier, but there's no veggies, then I can't do that. If you're telling me that there is a direct correlation between where I'm living and my health, then also help provide me with the opportunity or the environment or the housing situation that will contribute to my healthier lifestyle. Right, right. Emily, it's fair to say that your area of expertise um, is in housing, education, and health inequality related to racial and ethnic groups, correct? Mm -hmm. So aside from this study, what issues do you think are really underrepresented in the media when it comes to your field? What do you really wish that you saw out there that's not being covered? We hear sometimes about cancer. Or we hear about whatever disease. What do you think in your field is just not getting the attention that it deserves? In an ideal situation, I'd like to see more attention being given to the real lives of um, low-income populations in the city, but also elsewhere. But um, but my, my focus is mainly in uh, on cities and largely on New York City. Um, but the, the day-to-day struggles of low-income families, is it's a real problem. And I don't think that uh, given rising levels of income inequality, there's, uh, you know, everything is going to the top 1%. And they're further and further divorced socially, economically, but also geographically from the rest of us. Okay, but especially the bottom 10 or 20% in the income distribution. And so I don't think that um, enough attention is being given to the idea that kids growing up today are everybody's kids. And that if we don't invest in those kids, we're shooting ourselves in the foot later on because they're the ones who are going to be working for older cohorts like me uh, when I'm in retirement. If we don't invest in them, 
we're going to pay the cost. But is there one particular issue? If you, if I'm your fairy godmother and I'm saying I'm going to give you six million dollars to work on an, a particular issue on an area that you find is underrepresented, what would you do with that money? And you can't use it for this research. <laughs> oh, hold on, because we could use some more money. We got stuff we want to do. Um. Well, $6 million wouldn't be enough. But um, but to... $10 million, Emily. Here's 10 You You sold me. Billions. Here's I need 10. billions. No, but uh, the tendency historically for not just academics to be siloed in their, in their focus on their research, but also for um, uh, government agencies to be siloed in terms of what they spend their money on and what they focus on um, has been problematic. And um, in recent years under the Obama administration, they're making greater efforts to um, engage different agencies in working together on a problem. So by replicating uh, the Harlem Children's Zone on a higher, on a larger uh, basis uh, with promised neighborhoods, um, that's something that I think is worth investing in uh, so that you take a, a cradle to college approach to kids and um, uh, allowing them to be the best that they can possibly be. Because um, growing up in a disadvantaged environment, exacerbates the disadvantage that comes with socioeconomic disadvantage. And so by providing an environment where the resources are available, plentiful, and accessible is the best chance that kids can get. Well, okay. that's all the questions I have. You guys feel good about it? Yes. <laughs> okay. I'm just gonna... I'll reserve judgment on myself until <laughs> I hear the edited version. <laughs> My thanks to Fordham University professor Dr. Emily Rosenbaum and Albert Einstein College of Medicine assistant professor Dr. Earl Chambers. And a special thanks to my producer, Alan Canlett. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. <laughs>